Kato Shu, Entangling Vines, Case 14, Chosho's Chaos. Chosho asked Leon Shigon, what about the time of primordial chaos before any differentiation? Leon answered, a pillar conceives. Chosho said, what about after differentiation? Leon responded, it's like a wisp of cloud marking the great pure sky. Chosho asked, does the great pure sky accept this mark or not? Leun did not answer. Chosho continued, if that were so, living beings would not come forth. Again, Leun didn't answer. Chosho continued, how about when there's only absolute purity and all stains are avoided? Leon replied, that would be holding to eternal truth. What is holding to eternal truth? Chosho asked. It is like the infinite luminosity of a mirror, said Leon. Is there then a transcendence even of this? Asked Chosho. There is, replied Leon. What is this transcendence? Chosho asked. Leon said, smash the mirror, then you and I can meet. Chosho then asked, at the time of primordial chaos, before any differentiation, where do living beings come from? Leon answered, it is like a pillar conceiving. Today is the second day of our Hoan session, the session that we hold here at Rinzai-ji, the center that was founded by Denkyoshitsu, Gyozan Josu, a monk who came from Japan to bring Zen the way he learned it from his teacher, and his teacher learned from his teacher to the United States. It was 1962, and it's an interesting story to reflect upon how did Zen come to this continent, to North America. The very first person we know about who was a Japanese Zen master who came to the United States was Shaku Soen or as it's printed in the American way, Soen Shaku, who was the master of Engakuji in Japan. And he was nominated together with a couple of other Japanese religious people to come and attend the Congress of the World's Religions 
in the year 1893, which ran parallel or was part of the World Fair in Chicago. Shaku Soen was a Rinzai Roshi. He was very, very well known in Japan. That's how he was selected to be part of that group who attended that Congress of the World's Religion. And since Shaku Soen did not speak English, he brought a disciple of his along who knew English very well, who could translate. And we all know that disciple. Maybe we didn't know the connection before today, but the name of this disciple was Daisetsu Teitaro Suzuki, Dr. Suzuki. He was the translator for Shaku Soen when he came to the World Fair, to that Congress of the World's Religion. And he translated. It was quite interesting. At that Congress, actually, also many, many other religions were presented. There was an opening to the thought and the philosophies and the practices of the Far East. And I'm pretty sure that So and Shaku would have made a really, really big impression if there hadn't been other people from the Far East who gave talks. In particular, it was Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna, who came from India, whose English was perfectly intelligible. And he delivered his message of the Vedanta teachings as a person manifesting it to this crowd that was listening, and they were enchanted with it. It's quite different to have somebody speak in Japanese for a short time and then have another Japanese person translate it into English. It was different. It was difficult for people to actually connect with that. But still, there were a couple who connected with it. And an interesting little fact here is that the first person of American descent, North American, the first, very first Zen student of a Japanese Zen master, and actually Rinzai Zen master, was a woman. Her name was Ida Russell. Ida Russell was captured and captivated by what Dr. Suzuki had translated. And she invited Shaku Soen to return later. It took some time for him to come back to the United States. 1905, 1906, he came after having been in Japan for some time and gone through really difficult times, being awakened to a different reality. It was the time of the war between Russia and Japan, and Shaku Soen volunteered to go and to spread Buddhism to the evil Russians. And he saw himself going there like a missionary, bringing the Buddha's light into the darkness of the enemy. And that's how he wrote about it. It's quite interesting. But as it turned out, it was not that glorious. In his diary, he writes in great distances, actually. He had no time to write a daily entry. But it boiled down to the fact that he spent more time attending to fallen Japanese soldiers, at times finding himself unable to chant the sutras in front of 
mutilated corpses, this really shaking the foundation of why he had gone in the war and what is this Buddhism about? What is Zen about? What is Japanese nationalism? And his pro-war, pro-mission attitude changed dramatically. At some point, he couldn't take it any longer. Too much blood, too much stench, no way to even wash yourself. Death all around. He got out of it. He was able to follow some imperial prince back to Japan. And there he spent several months trying to recover, trying to recover from this horrific reality of the deadly silence of the battlefield. It didn't work so well. I think the modern words we would say, Chakusoren suffered from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so the invitation by Ida Russell to come to the United States was very welcome. Different kind of spreading Buddhism and bringing the light of the Buddha into a new land. So he came 1905, 1906, Dr. Suzuki again came and translated for him. But also he wanted to bring another monk with him because Dr. Suzuki, he wasn't a monk. He was a Zen student and very well educated, especially being able to translate into English. But he needed an attendant who was an ordained person. And he had another student, another student by the name of Senzaki Myogen. Here we refer to him in the order of the Western way of listing the names, so Myogen Senzaki. Myogen is the monk's name, and it means like a dream, like a fantasy. And Myogen Senzaki, he studied with Chakusoen at Engakuji. But he did really not have that great of a physical condition, so he was quite sickish. So if I remember correctly, he was not able to come in 1905, 1906 on the same boat. And then by the time he arrived in San Francisco, Diti Suzuki and the Zen master Chakusoen had already left onto a grand tour of the United States, giving talks all over. And those talks were written down and were published. And it was the first book that came out of America talking about Zen. And it was called Sermons of a Buddhist Abbot by Soen Shaku. It was later reprinted with a different title, Zen for Americans. And if you read it, it's quite interesting because there's this attempt by Shaku Soen to fold the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism and especially of Zen into this Judeo-Christian Abrahamic context. It's a worthwhile read to see how the early manifestations of trying to bring Zen to the United States and to, to America looked like. So while they were traveling, Yogen Senzaki, who was more like a country bumpkin, ended up at the Russells' house. You might imagine that the Russells had some good amount of money, otherwise they couldn't have afforded to invite Chakusoen to come over to print the book and all of that. 
Nyogen Senzaki. He was sick. He had a terrible affliction with his eyes that looked horrible. It was pussy. He was not refined like the university-educated Dr. Suzuki. He was not as refined as the Zen master from the great temple of Engakuji. And so, after not too long, the Russells asked Nyogen Senzaki, why don't you find another place to stay? And that began really the first time that a Zen-ordained person lived for many years in America. Nyogen Senzaki was very devoted to his teacher, and his teacher said, you stay in America, and you will teach here, but I ask you not to teach for, I believe it was 17 years. After you have been here for this amount of time, I give you permission to teach Zen. So until then, on his own, Nyogen Senzaki tried to survive here in America. At times, he was shining shoes. He worked in a hotel as the concierge, as the bellboy, as the night person, helping to drag drunk guests of the hotel back to their rooms at night, through the back stairway, so they would not be exposed to ridicule the next morning. At the same time, having a day job, doing something completely different. He went to school to learn how to dance, social dancing, so that he could fill in whenever it was needed in that context of the hotel. He worked a lot, and still he studied the scriptures. He grew up with somebody who introduced him to the classical Chinese writings. He knew how to compose poetry, Chinese poetry. He read Confucius, the Analects, and everything. He was very well educated. And he did that during the time here in America, when he was not working. At some point, he referred to himself as a mushroom monk. I am a mushroom monk who just very inconspicuously stands in the forest. No big flowers, no scent, not great looking. But there are spores and seeds that will come from this work that I'm doing. And in 50 or more years, Zen will be starting to grow here in America. That's how he thought about it. San Francisco was a little too difficult for him, so he moved to Los Angeles. And he found himself a little room, small room in Little Tokyo, not far from here. And when he came to Little Tokyo, he already had started teaching. And a couple of people knew about him being a Zen teacher, Senzaki Sensei. And so he arrived and he brought his clothes to the local laundry in Little Tokyo. And that laundry facility was run by the Tanahashi family. And the lady's name was Tanahashi Shubin. And she took his laundry, she washed it, and it was ready. But he didn't come to pick it up. He did not pick it up, but she saw him every day walking by the laundry shop. And so after several weeks, she stepped outside and said, uh, Mr. Senzaki, you know, your, your clothes are ready. And he turned to her and bowed, and with a deep red face, he said, Oh, I thank you so much, but I have not picked them up because I cannot pay you. 
I am really deeply embarrassed to put you through this. Shubin Tanahashi said to him, well, you know, I'd like to study Zen with you, but I also have the son, Jimmy, who is handicapped, who is developmentally way behind everybody else. If you could take care of him for certain times, I really would like you to do that, and I will wash your laundry for free. And through this exchange, Shubin Tanahashi and Yogen Senzaki started to work together as a Zen student and a Zen teacher. And one day, she showed him a few haiku, a few poems that she saw printed in a Japanese magazine. It was called Fujin Goron, the Wives Magazine. And there were these wonderful poems in there from a young Zen monk who lived in Japan. And she thought that Nyogen Senzaki would like them because he was into poetry himself. And he read them and instantly made a connection with the person. He needed to find out who is this person who wrote these poems. And it was a young Zen monk at the time in Japan who was training at Ryotakuji in Mishima. And his name was Nakagawa Soen. Nakagawa Soen, Soen Roshi, who then later became the abbot of Ryotakuji, taking over from his teacher, Yamamoto Genpo. And Nakagawa Soen was born in the same year as Joshu Roshi. There's just a couple of weeks between their birthdays. And so Soen Roshi wanted to come to the United States to visit with Nyogen Senzaki. But it was not possible because the Second World War broke out. America, the United States, and Japan engaged in warfare. Nyogen Senzaki was arrested on the street and taken into an internment camp, Heart Mountain, in Wyoming, a place in the middle of a high desert, hot in the summer, always dry, cold in the winter. And there he lived for several years with many other Japanese originating US citizens and also non-US citizens, interned for several years. Again, he ran a little Zen group there, and he wrote a lot about this experience. After he was released, Soen Roshi came and visited. Nakagawa Soen. He arrived in America on the Buddha's birthday. During the time where Soen Roshi and Yogen Senzaki could not meet, they established a ritual that they would chant the same sutras on a specific day, at a specific time, both in the places where they were, one of them in Japan, the other one in America. They selected the 21st of each month, and they designated that ceremony of chanting to the great Bodhisattva's mandala, the connection of the teachings of the Buddha that really stretches over time across oceans, across the universe, where all comes together in that activity 
of doing things together. So every 21st. In 1958, without creating too much of a large group or anything, the mushroom monk, Myogen Senzaki, passed away here in Little Tokyo. And the search started for another person to come. And the next person who arrived here was Sasaki Joshiroshi, the founder of this temple. And as the universe will have it, he arrived on the 21st, on Mandala Day, making yet one of those connections that transcends time and space. If you have a book that commemorates the 25 years of Joshu Roshi here in America, the Zen of Myoshinji comes to the West, and you go through it, you will see a picture, and it says Joshu Roshi and Mrs. Tanahashi sitting together, and a couple of other students of Myogen Senzaki. So already here we have a transmission, a transmission of this wonderful Zen practice in America that goes on to this day. The connections at times are just baffling. So I thought I should tell you this story so we know that we are 126 years into the presence of Zen in the United States from the first time that some Zen master appeared here. And from those seeds of this mushroom monk, I think if you look at this structure, if you look at the size of the Sangha, we can certainly say that a flourishing has taken place. And Ho'on, the requiting, the beneficence that we receive, imparts it on us as our responsibility to continue with this practice in the way that the circumstances ask us to conduct it. Of course, a lot will change and has changed since the traditional monastic Japanese practice came to America. And that is quite okay. Things transform. Transformation through the heart is something very important. And I think we have seen that transformation here. And part of it, of course, is always that we have to keep doing what is necessary. Keep adapting to the human beings, to their needs, to the need of society, and all of that. So that's how Zen came here. And when we look at our practice as we do it here now, I mentioned yesterday that we all arrive mostly as individuals. And it seems quite individualistic here, the practice. Everybody sits on their own cushion. You have your bowl set. There's this kind of designated, very small space that is for the individual. You get to eat, you get to sleep in your bed and all of that. But it's important that we also see the very important aspect of formal Zen practice that is the aspect of letting that individuality melt into something larger. In this case, the whole group, the Sangha, the Sangha who participates in this session, that we let our own boundaries that 
we try to enforce at times, become the boundaries of the group. That's why we do everything together. That's why we get up at the same time. We chant the same sutras to the same beat of the Mokugyo. We eat the same food. We bow at the same time. All of that gives us the opportunity to let go into the safety of a bunch of other human beings to whom we extend very deep trust. And that trust also we as ordained have in the way of practicing this way with the dedication, with putting our hearts and our bodies into the full form of whatever that may be at the current time. So let's be very practical for a moment. We eat three times every day together. Two of those times are meals, and the one in the evening is purely medicinal. Because back to the Vinaya and the old times in India, the monks were not allowed to eat in the evening. And it's a very practical reason. At that time, while in India, it's very hot. You eat too late in the evening, you don't feel so good. And so the monks were forbidden to eat. However, then when Buddhism moved northward and the climate changed, it became impractical not to eat at night. And some monks in China tried at times to still follow the rule and they would get a terrible tummy ache. Their bellies would hurt and in order to help themselves, they would take a stone, a flat stone and warm it up and lie it on their stomach so it will feel better. And that stone was called the medicine stone. And that is still the name of the meal that we take at night. It's called yakuseki. Yaku is a kusuri, which is medicine. And seki is ishi, is the stone. It's more practical to eat because we couldn't get enough stones for all of you. I think it's better if we eat some real food. But now, when we serve. There's a new procedure that we follow now. We are trying it out this time. And it's this uh, communal meal where we sit across from each other. Usually we sit in a single file and there's a Handai Khan who serves, but this is a self-serve kind of way of a more communal practice. And other centers, other monasteries have it that way too. To move the serving bowls or the serving pots down the middle of the table, there are these cloths under the pots, under the pans. Let's agree on how to do that. When it is in front of you, you serve yourself and the person across from you serves themselves. There's no problem on the first serving because everybody takes from every bowl. Even if you don't eat something, remember to pay respect to the work of the tenzo to pay respect to those who have grown the vegetables, the rice, who have made the miso, who have made the tofu, and all of that. Even if we don't like something, or even if it doesn't agree with us, we just take a little bit to transcend that individuality and give our thanks to 
having food. So once we have taken, the next pair reaches over and at the same time, together they hold onto the corners of the cloth and they pull it in front of themselves. And then together they serve. Each takes their own food. Then it moves on and on. We made a little adjustment so you don't have to navigate over any big steps between the tables. That makes it a lot easier, especially when the pots are heavy. Now, when all of that is done, on the second serving, it becomes a little bit different. We have to manifest the relationship with the person who is sitting across from us. So when the food comes and we pull it again together on the corners in front of us as a pair, if we don't take, we don't want to take food, we just bow with our hands in our laps. If we want to take food, you know, gasho indicates that, and then we pick up our bowl and the serving utensil. And we help the person who sits across from us in case we don't want anything, but they want to serve themselves. So we move the serving utensil that is there for us to take out of the way so they don't have to fight with another rogue ladle in the soup. That is also, again, giving ourselves not just to our own interest of not wanting to eat, but giving ourselves to the smooth dance of a meal that then proceeds. Once the person has served themselves, we put the utensil back. The food moves on. These are wonderful opportunities to see where our self rubs against the form, what kind of thoughts come up. Because eating is the most individual thing that we can do, that we have to do, besides breathing. Of course, breathing is also very important, and please do consider continuing to breathe. Eating is feeding our body. When we chant the five reflections in Japanese, maybe you would want to look at the translation at some point. We commit ourselves to using the energy that we derive from that food not just in an egotistic way, for self-preservation, for self-aggrandizement, for beating up ourselves or whatever it is. We vow to use that energy as the energy that we need to manifest ourselves as bodhisattvas. The individual practice of Zazen may be seen as limited to a Theravada kind of view, that it is me who is saving myself from the throes of samsara. But that's not what Mahayana and Zen is about. That's just the first step. We have to do it. We have to learn how to ride the bike before we can drive the bus. So not getting stuck in that is really important. And that's why the communal practice that comes from the monastic context in which we find ourselves here in a quite modified form by now, after 126 years, we said, of Zen having come to America. So please take that again as a gate that allows you to let go of what you think is right, what you think how it should be, what you like, what you dislike. And if you do that, you will enter the great way. Remember Sosan Ganchi Zenji. The third ancestor in his unbelieving in mind says, the highest path is not difficult. 
just beyond picking and choosing. Now we have to finish up the case. Yesterday we were able to ascertain in the beginning the primordial chaos, the condition of the root source, the condition where there is no differentiation, which we have heard about many, many times. And Chosho asked, what about it? Reun's answer was the pillar conceives the total sum of all potential within the state of the root source. What about when differentiation happens was the next question. And Leon said, it's like a wisp of cloud marking the great pure sky. Suddenly, differentiation appears. The next two questions went unanswered. Does the great pure sky accept this mark or not? Rayun did not answer. Chosho makes the statement, if that were so, living beings would not come forth. Again, Reun didn't answer. And here comes the part, I think, where we have to continue. How about when there's only absolute purity and all stains are avoided? Does any one of you remember when the fifth ancestor was looking to find a successor in his monastery? He asked the head monk to write a poem, right? And at the same time, there was this very uneducated, again, country pumpkin in there, Eno, who couldn't even write. And he composed his own poem. So there's something about stains and absolute purity with a mirror. You might want to go and look it up. So Rayon replies to this, that would be holding to eternal truth. In terms of Zazen, this is the state and the disease that we would call the samadhi junkie. Samadhi is a wonderful experience to just have that pure sky. But the main teaching of Tathagata Zen and of Zen in general is that even that purity is flawed if it is held onto. In fact, of course, it cannot be held onto. Joshu Roshi, he gave this example that many of us found really hilarious is that even if two people love each other so much that they hug each other and will not let go of each other, eventually one of them will have to go to the bathroom. There is really no static element here. Even that purity, it can be held on if something is avoided. But keep in mind that the practice of Zen is a practice that tries not to avoid anything, not to reject anything, not to hold on to any particular state, any particular event, any particular feeling. So Chosho asked, what is holding to eternal truth? And Rayon answered, it is like the infinite luminosity of a mirror. What Leon describes here, you know and you can experience yourself in the samadhi, the pure mirror samadhi where everything reflects, illuminates as yourself. Where there is, just by the nature of that activity, nothing that could be stained. As it says in the Hanya Shingyo, in the Heart Sutra, nothing is defiled, nothing is pure. 
everything reflects and illuminates through your luminosity. And of course, Chosho continues to ask, is there then a transcendence even of this? In other words, Chosho is still thinking, well, there must be something that must be higher than that. I want to measure something that is higher than this purity, this luminous mirror. Leon says, of course there is. What is this transcendence? Chosho wants to know. And Leon said, smash the mirror, then you and I can meet. Now there are several ways we can look at that. One of them is following the teachings of Tathagata Zen again. Even the pure mirror mind will shatter. Even that clear sky will break away and the 10,000 things will come into existence. That's where you and I can meet. That's where a you and I exist. And the other way, not different at all, is that even that great sky, that great mirror mind disappears into the root source, into zero, where you and I do not exist, where you and I always have been together. If we think of shunyata, shunyata not as voidness, but shunyata in the true Buddhist definition as the absence of a fixated entity. Many people do misunderstand shunyata as there is nothing. There is nothing. It's empty. But that is just an absolute kind of concept. There is nothing. It's just another substance of no substance that is being said to be the root of everything. But it's still a thing. But Shunyata really says there is no Shwabhava. There is no such identity. There is no thing. And even Shunyata, emptiness, has to be understood as being free of Shwabhava. The shunyata of shunyata, the emptiness of emptiness, that it's not just a concept, is the way to transcend that. And talking about is really silly, but it has been talked about by many people for many thousands of years, but only for the purpose of pointing into the direction of providing some kind of orientation should you find yourselves emerging from that shunyata. The mirror will smash and you and I will meet either in this world of the 10,000 things or in the nameless, immeasurable, inexhaustible. Chosho ends the koan by repeating his first question. At the time of primordial chaos, before any differentiation, where do living beings come from? Leon answers again, it is like a pillar conceiving. Case 14 of the Shumon Katoshu lays out in its full 360 degree way, all around 
the principles of Nyorai Zen, the principles of the source polarizing, the principle of the source splitting up into a two-dimensional opposition of polarities, of creating the space in between where we and our consciousness appear, leading it to the realization of that very underlying root source through samadhi, the two different kinds of samadhi, the full mirror mind that then shattered itself to return back either into a conscious world or the root source. It has been said in many different ways. We, many of us, had the very great fortune to hear it as the manifestation of the life and the teachings of Joshu Roshi, to whom this session is dedicated. And one thing that we have to learn and undertake from here is that if we want to or have to or being urged to speak about it, manifest it, there is no other way for us to do it for ourselves, with our body, through our actions, through our heart. It is like a pillar conceiving. 